We're going to be reading from Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 to 15. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised, with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by cancelling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Thank you, Delphine. The Apostle Paul wrote letters. Does that come as a surprise to anybody here this morning? I doubt it very much. That's how we tend to think of Paul, isn't it? Those letters in the New Testament that sometimes we find it quite difficult to understand. Um, Sometimes wonder if we emphasise a bit too much his letters and not quite enough his life. If you haven't read the Acts of the Apostles recently, it's quite a long book, but it's good stuff. And I recommend that uh, perhaps you get into Acts. It's not all about Paul, it's about other people as well. But uh, there's so much to learn from his life as well as from his letters. But the question arises, why did he write letters? Was he just a friendly sort of chap, you know? Oh, haven't heard much from those Galatian Christians recently. I think I'll just drop them a line and get in touch. Being friendly? No. When Paul wrote letters, other people wrote letters in the New Testament, they wrote with a definite purpose. Something needed to be attended to. And for Paul... Often his role as a letter writer was as a troubleshooter. There were problems in the early church, just as there are problems in our churches today. And Paul, the elder statesman, had this role as a troubleshooter. Corinth is a very obvious example. The church in Corinth was an absolute shambles. There were so many things wrong with the church in Corinth. Paul wrote two letters, two long letters. In fact, he probably wrote another letter as well, which we don't have. There is mention of another letter, and we don't have it. It didn't make it into the scriptures. He wrote these letters to put them right. Um, The church in Thessalonica, the church of the Thessalonians, there were problems there. There was a lot of good going on in Thessalonica, But there were real problems too. And one of the things was that the the Christians of Thessalonica 
were getting a bit hung up on the second coming of Jesus. They were convinced that Jesus was coming back very, very soon. And some of them said, well, we don't need to work. We can down tools. We can live off our savings. We can just enjoy ourselves until Jesus comes back. And Paul, among other things, tackles that particular error. Galatia. There are a number of churches in Galatia. And the, the biggest problem of all, perhaps in the New Testament, is represented in the epistle to the Galatians. The problem in Galatia was that most of the Christians were Gentiles rather than Jews. The first believers in Jesus, of course, were all Jews. Jesus was the Jewish Messiah. And many Jews came to believe in him. But then, Gentiles, non-Jews, also came to believe in Jesus. And there was a question. Can they be received into the church of Jesus Christ? And some said, yes. But, of course, Jesus is a Jew, he's the Jewish Messiah, so they can't come into the Jewish Messiah's church until they themselves have become Jews. The men must be circumcised, and they must all submit themselves to Jewish dietary laws, Old Testament laws. And in Galatia, there was a big problem, and it led to a big blow-up, and it was difficult. So what about Colossae? What do we know about Colossae that uh, it merited a letter from the Apostle Paul? There's so much good about Colossae, as we find as we go through the letter, but there were big problems as well. If you go to verse uh, 6, you see that Paul says there, See to it that no one takes you captive, no one kidnaps you, by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition. We're not clear exactly what it was all about, but there was some kind of infiltration into the church in Colossae, rather like those, those very Jewish Christians in the churches of Galatia. In Colossae, there was an infiltration into the church of these, these strange ideas which weren't quite fully Christian. And that's why Paul is concerned. The church in Colossae was probably founded about 50, 52, something like that. That's about 20 years after the resurrection, of course. And Paul wrote this letter, the experts think, sometime between 52 and 60. So it was a young church. It was still feeling its way. It was still learning its way. And Paul decides he's got to write to them. Verse 8 talks about philosophy and empty deceit. Nobody seems to know quite what that means. <laughs> philosophy presumably is, is humanly intellectual teaching of some kind or other. There were lots of philosophies in the ancient world. Empty deceit. He doesn't have a very high opinion of these people who were infiltrating the church. According to human tradition, nothing wrong with many human traditions, but that's not enough for you if you're a Christian. You want more than that. You want the inspiration of God's word. And then he talks about according to the elemental spirits of the world. Elemental 
spirits of the world. He comes back to that in verse 20. What are the elemental spirits of the world? Are they demonic spirits? Was there some kind of occult, some kind of spiritualistic thing going around in Colossae? There is today, isn't there, in lots of places. Perhaps it was happening there as well. Paul is concerned about that. If you go down to verse 16, creeping into next week here, forgive me whoever's preaching next week, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink. Ah, perhaps it was Jewish influences which were holding them back from full discipleship. Or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath, a bit of Judaism again there. These are okay, but they're only a shadow, he says, of the things to come. The substance belongs to Christ. And that's what you should be focusing on. Verse 18, let no one disqualify you. Some of these infiltrators were saying to some of these people, you can't belong to the church, you've not been circumcised. You've not become Jews. You'll have to wait your turn. What's asceticism? Fasting a lot? Going without? Being hard on yourself? Some of them perhaps were very proud that they were that kind of people. We fast a lot and we do a lot of good stuff. Worship of angels. What is going on? Worship of angels. It's where you feel you'd like to meet Paul and sort of sit down in an armchair with him at a cup of coffee and say, Paul, could you just enlighten us a bit? What's this worship of angels going on at Colossae? Do you mean worship offered by angels? Do you mean worship offered to angels? It's one or the other, but we don't really know what it means. We don't really know what it involves. Things were going on in Colossae. Paul decides to write a letter. The world has changed a lot in the 2,000 years since the New Testament was written. It's changed an enormous amount. But some things don't change. And it is a simple fact that uh, religion, using that broad umbrella term, is particularly subject to weird and wacky ideas, which may not be completely anti-Christian, but which are not fully Christian, as we would want them to be. So I think the things that Paul is saying to the Colossian Christians can apply to us as well as we look around our troubled world. What advice does he have to give? I've boiled it down as best I can. There's so much packed into this passage. I've distilled it as best I can under three simple, I hope, headings. And here's what they are. Number one, Christian, be discerning. Be discerning because you need to pick and choose between what's right and what's wrong. Don't be taken in. In my period as a a minister over many, many years, I've been amazed at some of the wacky things that good Christian people have taken on board because of some book they've written, because of some preacher that they have heard. 
I've had people come with their planning their weddings and can we have this song and it's not even a Christian song but it sounds nice it's got a nice tune I'm thinking do you really want that on your wedding day is that really something that you want Christians can easily be taken in I don't want to go on over uh, overdue length, but uh, I've been a Christian long enough to have seen trends and fads and fashions come and go. I was a very young Christian when what we now call the charismatic renewal was born. And it took us all by surprise. We didn't know what to make of it. People speaking in tongues and prophesying and all sorts of things. What's going on? Pentecostalism was spilling out of the Pentecostal church into the mainstream churches. We didn't know what to make of it. I was very young at the time. Um, and I was happy to leave it to wiser heads than mine to try and work out the rights and wrongs of that. But I've seen people, as maybe you have, falling on the ground in worship, slain in the spirit, it used to be called people insisting that healing is always available. If you've got faith, you put your trust in Jesus and you can be healed. People got confused by these things. Not to mention cults of the Virgin Mary, which are very popular in certain circles. I remember visiting once a church which I think is called a Zionist church. That was a particularly interesting experience where the focus didn't seem to be on Jesus at all but on the tribes of Israel, the church reborn as the 12 tribes of Israel. Its beliefs seem to be seen all through the lens of the Old Testament. Zionist Christianity. I don't think it is established in this country. I saw it in America. But it's around some strange ideas. Please, Christian, says Paul, don't be taken in. Don't be totally anti. Some Christians are just totally anti anything that's new. Can't have that. Can't be doing with that. And that's a mistake as well, isn't it? We need to be discerning. And to be discerning is to to pray, to think, to talk, to study, and to make up your mind, is this of God or isn't it of God? Because there, at the end of verse 8, you see how that verse ends, these things are not according to Christ. Anything that detracts from Christ is to be viewed with suspicion. Keep focused on him. That's the first heading. The second heading which I'd like to uh, suggest from this passage is Christian, be determined to grow. Be determined to grow. Um, Go back to verse 6. There's some lovely verbs in verse 6. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord... So walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. 
first verb is received. You've received Christ. That means you put your faith and your trust in him. That's great. As you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. The Bible often uses the image of walking to describe progress in your spiritual life. Enoch walked with God. So many other people walked with God. If you don't walk, you're going to stand still. And if you're standing still, you aren't standing still, you're going backwards. I grew up in London and much of my childhood seemed to be spent on the London Underground. We didn't have cars. We went on buses in the Underground. And one of our great games on the Underground was, can you run up the down escalator? It was a great game, whether the worthy citizens of London using the underground appreciated our enjoyment of this game is another matter. But we learned that if you stand still, you don't stand still. (laughs) You go the way you are taken. Are you growing? Am I growing? Have I grown in the last year, the last five years, the last ten years? You might say, well, How do I know if I'm growing? Answer, you probably don't. (laughs) Other people will know. Like parents will know if a child is growing. They put the child against the wall, don't they? And there's a a little chart there of how tall they are. The child hasn't got a clue that the child is growing. But the child is growing. And mum and dad see it, don't they? Your friends and your fellow Christians will see if you're growing or not. Walk in him. Another verb here is rooted. I like that, don't you? Rooted. Have you got deep roots in Christ? Built up in him, a different image altogether. Rooted to suck up the nourishment that comes from Christ alone. And built up to become established, Paul says, in the faith, just as you were taught. It's all about growth. There is no such thing as a healthy Christian who isn't growing. If we're not growing, then we're going backwards and we're losing our way. So Christian, Christian, be determined to grow. Maintain the discipline of prayer, whether you feel like it or not. Maintain the discipline of reading scripture, whether it makes good sense to you at the time or not. It'll make sense in due course. But make it your prayer, Lord, I want to grow. I want to become more like Jesus. I want to become the person you want me to be. Christian, be determined to grow. The third heading, the final heading, Christian, keep focused on Christ. Sounds obvious, doesn't it? But we can be misled. We can be waylaid. This is really uh, verses 9 to 15, and there's so much packed in there that uh, it really needs a sermon to itself. So I just want to to take us through it um, and try and pick apart some of the things that Paul is saying here. 
Is there any verse in the Bible more amazing, in the true sense of the word amazing, than verse 9? Verse 9, Paul says, For in him, Christ, the whole fullness of deity, dwells bodily. Have you ever thought about that? In Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily which I think can be translated as saying everything about God that is God is wrapped up in this man, Jesus Christ. Jesus is God in the flesh. God incarnate is the old-fashioned term. Verse 9 is quite remarkable. Please take it and read it and meditate on it for a few minutes. I don't know if the Virgin Mary ever read the letter to the Colossians. I don't think there's any reason to think that she would have done, but she could have read that. She said, so that I I changed the nappy of the eternal Son of God and the apostles who walked with him on the hillsides of Galilee, they would have said, we saw this man, we saw the sweat on his brow. We saw the muscles of his hands which had been developed by his work as a carpenter. We heard him snoring in the next room when we were tired at night. We saw him sitting by the well asking for a a drink of water. Do you remember that time he spat? He was healing the man with the impediment of speech. And he spat. The Son of God, the eternal Son of God. We don't say that the Word was made flesh for nothing, do we? The Word really was made flesh. And that is why he has to be central in everything that we do. And you, he says in verse 10, you have been filled in him. I don't know what that means. You have been filled in him. I think the NIV in this particular instance is a better translation. The NIV says, you have found fulfillment in him. As it comes across in the ESV, I'm not sure it's very meaningful. But that makes sense, whether it's a true uh, translation, I don't know. You have been filled in him. You have reached your fulfillment in him. It's when you come to Christ, that you start to become the person God wants you to be. Before we come to Christ, we are a pale shadow of what we can be. It's when you come to Christ and put your trust in him and obey him and love him and follow him, he makes you the kind of person that uh, he wants you to be. He is the head of all rule and authority. We grumble about rulers and authorities, don't we? The the politicians and the presidents and all the rest of it, the prime ministers. They're nothing. He is the head of all these things. He is the one Lord. He is the one King. He is the one ultimate ruler. And then in verse 11, we see how Paul comes to the illustration of circumcision. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. 
having buried, been buried with him in baptism. Now again, that needs an awful lot of unpacking that we don't have time for. But if there were people going around a church in Colossae, these very Jewish Christians, and they were pointing the finger and they were saying, sorry, you can't be a real Christian because you've not been circumcised, you've not become a Jew. He says, you've been circumcised. A spiritual circumcision symbolized in baptism. Baptism is important, isn't it? I know there are disagreements and arguments about what form baptism should take, but it is important. Am I talking... Don't put your hands up, but am I talking to anybody this morning who has been putting off getting baptised as a believer? It's important, isn't it? To demonstrate your faith and to be incorporated into Christ by dying in the act of going under the water and rising again as you come out to be a new person, a clean person with your sins washed away. You've been circumcised, says Paul. Don't worry what these people are saying to you about circumcision. You, he says in verse 13, you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. It's all to do with forgiveness. Do you know that your sins are forgiven? You rejoice in the forgiveness of sins. It doesn't make us complacent. We can still sin and we should be ashamed of our sins. But it's something to rejoice in, isn't it? And then a wonderful illustration to finish off in verses 14 and 15. By cancelling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands... I've never received an IOU. We don't have IOUs these days, do we, most of us? I shouldn't think. But we do have bills, some of us. In fact, we've all got bills to pay. A bill, effectively, is an IOU, isn't it? I owe somebody some money, and that bill has got to be paid. And what Paul is saying here is this. The IOU has been dealt with. God himself has come and whacked a great big nail through it as the nails went through Jesus' body. So the nail has gone through the IOU that we owe to God. Lovely song, the price is paid. Come, let us enter in to all that Jesus died to make our own. Jesus has paid the debt for your sin, for my sin. It's been cancelled once and for all. As I say, there's so much to, to open up in that little passage and I'll leave you to go and perhaps meditate on it and reflect on it in a deeper kind of way. But uh, don't put off baptism if you've not been baptised yet. If you're thinking about it, if you know that God is calling you to make this step into the new life which is there for you in Christ, I encourage you to make that step take it seriously I am a new creation we used to sing no more in condemnation here in the grace of God I stand Christian 
don't be taken in. Christian, what was my second point? Be determined to grow. Christian, keep focused on Christ. That is the way of peace. That is the way of joy. That is the way of hope. It's useful having wives around the place. Isn't it? <laughs> Enjoy it. It's good to belong to Jesus Christ. A word of prayer. Father, thank you for the riches of grace available to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for this very condensed passage which yields up so many treasures. Help us to take it to heart and to learn from it and indeed to enjoy it. In Christ our Lord we pray. Amen.